Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I want to start off this morning with a little bit of a confession. Um, one of my all-time favorite movies, and, you know, it's not like some really big, important, you know, life-changing movie. Um, it's kind of one of those guilty pleasure kind of things. One of my all-time favorite movies um, is Back to the Future. Anybody else like that movie? That's, that's like one of my favorites. And, and I usually don't like sequels, but I actually liked Back to the Future 2 better than Back to the Future. Because what was really cool about it is it was pretty much like the same story, but there was a backstory going on. And, and you kind of got the same story from two different perspectives. Because not only is Marty McFly trying to get his parents together, but Marty McFly is trying to help Marty McFly get his parents together. You know, it's, it's, it was a very, very clever thing. And you find out there's, there's a bigger story to the whole deal. And, and I just thought that was just a really clever thing. And I like time travel stuff anyway. So that, anyway, that's what, some of my favorite, um, favorite movies. And every time you get that, kind of that kind of a thing where you get, you get the same story from, from two different perspectives... It just gives you um, a greater depth to it and a greater understanding to it. And, and we talked about this last week. Um, two of the Gospels have no mention of the birth of Jesus. Uh, Mark doesn't write about it. John doesn't write about it. Only Matthew and Luke. And I'm not going to compare Back to the Future with the Gospels, okay? But if you notice, if you've read them, um, if you read the book of Matthew's account and then the Gospel of Luke's account, they're written from two different perspectives. I don't know if you've noticed that before. But if you read through it, in the Gospel of Matthew, the story is told through the eyes of Joseph. What was going on in his head? What thoughts he had going? What, what, what he was dealing with? And if you read Luke's account, it's actually from the eyes of Mary. And the announcement that's made to Mary and how Mary goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth and, and all of that. And, and I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But they're from two different perspectives. But when you take them together, it gives you a real depth of the story about what it is God was about to do with the birth of Jesus. We've been in this series talking about hope, and uh, we talked the first week about hope for the world, that God is at work in human history behind the scenes when nobody else can see it. God is still at work, and he is still at work in, in our human history today, whether we see it or not. God is still at work, and there is hope because God is ultimately working things out for his glory. For his purposes. And then last week we looked at the family. We looked at actually the family tree of Jesus. The family that he came from. And we talked about hope for the family. That no matter what your family background. No matter what family labels you were given. uh, No matter what baggage you carry from your family. There's still hope for you. That's that's the message of Christmas. Is that Christ came from a broken family tree. But he brought hope to the world. And this morning, we're going to look at, at the Gospels of Matthew and Mark together, the stories of the birth of Jesus from Matthew's perspective and, and from uh, Luke's perspective, from Joseph and from Mary. And, and looking at them together, um, what you're going to find is what I really want to get to this morning is, is the personal nature of hope. Not just hope for the world, not just hope for your family, but, but for you. Because I think we're at a time where we all could use a little bit of hope. And this story the story that it is told, both through Luke's perspective and Matthew's perspective, from the eyes of Joseph and from Mary, uh, their example give us a, a bit of a, how we can learn about hope. And, and hope is so important. I think there's nothing more, more critical to our lives than the vitality of our hope. Because hope is the thing that keeps us going, even when our faith might falter. 
Hope is absolutely essential. And for some of us, hope comes much more easily than others. Some of us are natural-born hopers. We, we just have an optimistic attitude, and, and we deal with things that way. Some of us, not so much. But what I wanted you to understand this morning is it doesn't matter what your temperament and what your personality is. We can all learn to be more hopeful people. And there's some things about hopeful people that we learn in this story um, that you can apply to your own life, that there are some, some important lessons that you can learn from hopeful people. Because hopeful people, they, they learn a number of things. They learn, first of all, how to adjust their hopes when there's a changing reality. That hopeful people know this, that they understand life is a series of adjustments. It really is. If you think about it, most, most often life could be described that way. Nothing really turns out the way that you plan. Am I wrong? I mean, it doesn't matter how great you plan. It just, very often, it just doesn't turn out the way that you thought. When our kids were getting ready for college and they were you know, trying to decide on a college and, and what major and all these things, you know, my thing was, I don't care what you choose, just get a degree. <laughs> just get a degree. Because most people don't end up working in the field that they got their degree. Just show hands. How many people here went into a field of study in college and maybe started out even on the career path and you are in a completely different field right now? Anyone? Yeah. See, it it doesn't work out the way you plan. Life rarely does. And and, and the thing is, we get confused because we have this kingdom problem because we live with this illusion that we are in control of our lives. That, that we push the buttons, we pull the levers, we're in control, we're in charge of our lives. We're building our own little kingdoms, and it's all about me and my family and my desires and my agenda. And I go to work, and I want things to run my way. I want projects on my schedule, the tasks that I've assigned being carried out. I want to call the shots. And what's, what's going on there? What does that mean? It means i got a kingdom problem, that it's all about me. And I come home and, and I walk into my kids' rooms and the beds are made just the way I told them to. And their chores are all done just the way I showed them. And the lawn is mowed perfectly the way that I showed them. What does that mean? It means I'm building my own little kingdom. I'm calling the shots here. I come home from work. I walk through the door at the end of the day. And my slippers are laid out by the easy chair. And the newspapers, they're ready for me to read. And on the stove, dinner is being prepared. And it is my favorite meal. What does that mean? I've walked into the wrong house, yeah. Because life doesn't work that way. It doesn't. We have our hopes, we have our dreams, we make out and lay out our plans. But truthfully, it rarely works out exactly the way we thought it would. Joseph and Mary had hopes. Don't, don't, Don't be deceived. They did. They were a young couple. They had hopes, they had dreams, they had plans. And I think, you know, we're on this side of the story. We know how it turns out. You know, we had the benefit of knowing what was going on there. But put yourself in their shoes for a moment. And just think, what would it be like for you? Were you in this situation? Kind of pull back from what you already know. And just put yourself in the shoes of Mary. She's pledged to be married to a man. God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth. Nazareth, by the way, was a very small village. Maybe 450 people. At the, at the most, maybe 1,000. It was a very, very small village. Everybody knew everybody. And God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, to a town 
in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And the virgin's name was Mary. Mary had plans. Mary had hopes and dreams. She was engaged. She, she, she was making wedding plans. And, and if you've ever been involved in that, you know you don't mess with any bride's wedding plans, you know? She's getting it all planned out. She's got hopes. She's got dreams. She and Joseph, I think, are looking forward to just living quiet, respectable lives in this little village. Nobody's going to bother them. They've got that dream of the white picket fence and the 2.5 children or whatever the equivalent of that is back then. They've got all these hopes and dreams. And something changes. She's pledged to this man. Now, by the way, Here's something you may not understand. And by the, if you've got a King James Bible, it says betrothed to Joseph. Okay, That, that is a very specific thing. Um, and it's something we don't practice today. But the way that marriage worked back then was typically um, the couple was put together by an agreement of the parents. It was kind of an arranged marriage. Or they would hire a professional matchmaker. They really did. And, and so they would, they would you know, pick these two people to be married. And they did have a chance to bail out if they didn't really want to. Um, but typically, they didn't. Typically, the, the marriage was arranged. And when they got to marrying age, there was this period called the betrothal, where an agreement was worked out between the two families. And it was at that moment. In fact, that was more important than the wedding ceremony itself. The wedding ceremony was just kind of the celebration at the whole end of the deal. But it really started at the betrothal. And what would happen was, it was there that the negotiating would take place. How much is the dowry going to be? Two goats, a cow, 50 shekels, you know, whatever it is. Is she a, is she a, a five goat lady or is she a 10 goat lady? You know what? <laughs> yeah, and that, that's, there would be this agreement worked out. And then it lasted for about a year. And the groom's job was then for that year to kind of get his act together. And, and, he, and, he, and he worked on, on securing his, his dowry because he needed to give those gifts to the parents in order to take his bride. And, and part of it, wasn't, it wasn't buying somebody, okay? What it really was, was it was showing, I am a responsible young man. I can provide for your daughter, and I can provide, uh, provide above and beyond. And here is the gift that I give to you to show you. And that's what it was. And they're in this betrothal period. We don't know where they are, but they're, they're in this period of about a year. And Joseph is working very, very hard to come up with the dowry. And, and, and that's all that's going on. And in the meantime, Mary is waiting for him to get his act together, you know? Um, and, and here's where the angel shows up and speaks to Mary and changes all of her plans and hopes and dreams. And then, and then God shows up to Joseph too. And you read in Matthew that side of the story. We don't know when he found out in this whole thing. Um, we don't know it was in the third month, sixth month, you know, last trimester, whenever it was. But he finds out that his bride-to-be, his betrothed, is pregnant. Now, there's only two ways that happened. She was either seduced or she was raped. And the Torah had a way to account for that. And it says about Joseph, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Now, that is a, that is a specific term. The, the Hebrew is sadiq. And it means someone who is, who is, um, he is learned He studies and he learns and he lives his life by the Torah. He is a righteous man. 
He is someone who has set his life aside to follow the commandments of God, that he was going to live his life by the Torah. And all of his life has been preparing that way. And that's, that's his label. That's his reputation. He is a righteous man. And if he marries this woman who is now pregnant, he's gonna, his reputation is going to change. Because what it means is he's not a righteous man. Because if he marries her, well, then he must really be the father. And there was some hanky-panky going on when there wasn't supposed to be during this one-year betrothal period. And he's going to lose that reputation. And so he's kind of stuck with this. It says he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He's got two choices. As a tzaddik, he's got two choices. He can have her brought to the public square or whatever the gathering place is, the gate of the city, wherever it might be, at the most public place, and she will be brought before, and charges would be leveled against her, and she would be accused of being an adulteress or or something worse, and, and she would be stripped and she could possibly be stoned to death. But if he did that, see, if he did that, it would be clear and publicly all through the village known that he is still a righteous man. He had nothing to do with all this whole thing that's going on with Mary. He, he didn't do it. He's the clean guy. His reputation will not be sullied. Now, if he chooses the private divorce, there will always be the whispers and the questions going on behind his back. Was he really the father? But, you know, he didn't dare make it public, but he didn't marry her either, so something's going on there. What's the real story? You know, what does the inquirer say, you know? (laughs) There would always be those questions. And yet he chooses to do the private thing. It's going to harm his reputation. And and these are the only two options I got. Because I I can't marry her, because that would be the worst thing of all. It's very often when circumstances of our lives change that we begin to lose hope. It's when all of the things that we have pinned our hopes on begin to crumble and fall apart that hope starts to die. And Mary had hopes, and Joseph had hopes, and they all had these plans, and it was all working out, and now it's changed. Circumstances are completely different. What they had hoped for is never going to to happen and hope is that way hope can die when your circumstances change hope can die with it hope can break your heart because if you pin your hopes on something and it is crushed it crushes you Lewis Smedes has written a great book entitled Keeping Hope Alive uh, for a Tomorrow That We Cannot Control he writes these words Human hoping is always a gamble with pain of the very worst kind. When we pin our happiness on what we hope for, our reward may be the most wretched kind of sadness. Whenever our dearest hopes are crushed, we face this crisis. Do we have a fallback hope to carry us through the times when the hope we leaned on collapses? And that's kind of what's going on with Mary and Joseph. And maybe that's going on in your own life in some way. You're in a relationship or you were in a relationship and you thought that relationship was working its way to a marriage. And that was your hope and that was your dream. And you could see it all, that picture in your mind. And now now he's cut it off 
and, and he's broken the relationship. And what you thought was going to end in a happy marriage is, is no more. And your hopes have died. Or, or you're, you're in a marriage and you come home one day and your wife says, I don't love you anymore. In fact, I never really did. And I'm not happy in this marriage and I'm going to go find my own happiness. And she walks out of your marriage. And you can do nothing about it. Or your kids are making choices right now that break your heart. And you know where the road leads and you'd like to go in and, and, and change it, but you can't. And they're making these decisions and, and you'd put all of your hopes in what they could become and you saw their potential, but the choices they're making are destroying that hope. Or your health is failing. Or you got a diagnosis this week of a terrible disease and it has floored you. And you don't know what you're going to do because you didn't see it coming. Or your career is stuck. And you realize you're never going to go any further. This is it. And you pinned your hopes on that corner office and that promotion and it doesn't come through. And your hopes are crushed. Or you find yourself in really tough finances right now with this economy. And you've actually, and you hated to do it, and you didn't want to do it, and you never thought you would have to do it, but you've had to declare bankruptcy. You've lost your house, lost your job. And there's all your hopes. They're crushed. And I know those things because I've had conversations with every one of those kind of situations going on in the last couple of weeks in our church family. And when hope dies, it can be crushing. But I want you to know this morning, your hopes may die, but that doesn't mean hope has to die with them. What you need is to adjust your hopes to this new reality. And hopeful people learn that. Joseph and Mary are going to have to change their plans. They're going to have to change their hopes because life is not going to be the way that they thought it was going to be. Everything has changed and it's not going to be easy. This is going to be a tough road ahead of them. This isn't going to just end in nine months. This is going to be with them the rest of their lives. And God comes to both of them in a dream to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Do not be afraid. And the angel Gabriel comes to Mary with the very same words. Do not be afraid, Mary, because you have found favor with God. Do not be afraid. Your circumstances have changed. Your hopes and dreams maybe are crushed, but there is a new reality, and do not be afraid. Do you know that that is the single most repeated commandment in all of Scripture? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid afraid and maybe your hopes have been dashed don't give up hope you do need to adjust your hopes to this new reality hopeful people learn how to do that and hopeful people also learn to rely on God's spirit to keep hope alive that hope is not something that you just manufacture on your own This is a huge change of plans for Mary and Joseph, a whole new set of circumstances. And of course, Mary's got questions. The angel appears and tells her what's going to go on, and she says, how will this be? 
How will this be? How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? How can I be pregnant when I'm a virgin? I've never been with a man. I've never been even with my husband-to-be. How is this going to happen? And that's not just the only how is it going to happen. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to live with this? How am I going to be able to tell people what's going on? Who in the world is going to believe me? Yeah, I'm pregnant, but it's the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I never heard that one before. (laughs) It's a good one. Who's going to believe her? Will Joseph? Will her parents? Will her future in-laws? How would you like to be a daughter-in-law trying to explain away that one? How am I going to live with this? When he's born, and all that whispering is going to be going on, not only behind my back, but behind his back, and the names that he's going to be called when nobody can see him, and maybe even say it to his face, you illegitimate bastard. That's all you are. Born out of wedlock. You're a nobody. He's going to live with that label all of his life. And she will live with the label given her. And Joseph, who has now lost his reputation, is going to live with a new label. How will this be? How will I get through this? How am I going to cope? And the answer is, it's not going to be in your own strength, Mary. All of this is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, he said, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And those very same words are actually given to Joseph when he finds out and he's troubled and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And God appears to him. He says, take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This really is what she said it was. This is the work of God. It's his Holy Spirit at work. And this is the thing I want you to get from here. This morning, because the very same spirit that was at work in Mary is the very same spirit of God that is at work in you. Because when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says the spirit of Christ himself indwells you. And that is the source of your hope because hope doesn't come by working it out in your own willpower. Hope is not just wishful thinking or or manufactured cheery optimism or, or trying to maintain a positive mental attitude. Hope is much more serious. Hope is much deeper than that. Hope is understanding that God is at work in my life in spite of the circumstances. That it doesn't matter what's going on or how overwhelming it might be, God is at work within me. And the circumstances may not change, but God is changing me. Because the very same spirit that was at work in Mary is at work in you. And that's why Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That you would understand what God is doing inside of you. That his spirit is at work within you, no matter what the circumstances. And I have been through, I have been through incredible highs and, and times in my life where I, the only way I could describe it is to say it is a blessing from God because I didn't deserve it. It came out of the blue, but God carried me and took care of me and provided for me in such a way that it was absolutely a blessing of God. That's the only way I can describe it. And I have been through some of the darkest times and I've wondered where God is. I ask you. How many of you could say you've been through a period in your life, maybe a sustained period, where the only way you can describe it is God has blessed me? Anybody? Yeah. How many here would say, I have been through one of those dark times too, and I wonder where God was through all of it? 
Yeah. And you know what I discovered? God does his best work in the dark times. And I wouldn't choose him. And I would never want to go back and go through them. But what I have always found is coming out of the dark times, that God has done his deepest work in me. And this is going to be a difficult time for Joseph and for Mary. But God is doing a very deep, deep work. And, and the, I heard a definition recently of hope. Hope is faith hanging on by its fingernails. <laughs> That's a pretty good description. Hope is, hang, is faith hanging on by its fingernails, relying that God is at work in my life. And even if the circumstances don't change, God is still changing me. Hopeful people learn that, and they rely on that. They are open to the Holy Spirit's work in their life, and they're really able to adjust their hopes when old hopes die. And hopeful people learn to trust God to be with them, no matter where life might lead them. Hopeful people do that. They learn to trust God to be there, no matter where they find themselves. The most important thing we can hope for from God is God himself. The very first words given to Mary. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. I said earlier, do not be afraid. That is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Do you know what the most repeated reason for not being afraid is in Scripture? Because I am with you. Do not be afraid, Moses, though you may think you can't speak. Do not be afraid to go speak in front of Pharaoh, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, Joshua, to lead your people into this land that I have promised, because as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Do not be afraid, Abraham, to leave your home and to walk and go to a place you do not know, because I am with you. And you find over and over and over again this commandment, do not be afraid. And more often than not, do not be afraid, for I am with you. See, as long as we can trust that God is there with us, we can keep hoping. Because God is with us. The Lord himself said, Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Why do I have such a hard time believing that? Sometimes it is so difficult to believe. Because you see, when you go to seminary, and when you go to Bible college and you learn how to study the Bible and all this thing, one of the things they teach you is make sure that you do not take verses of Scripture out of context. You always have to read within the context. And what happens is I read about Moses being told, do not be afraid. And I think, well, that was for Moses. And God says it to Joshua. Well, that was for Joshua. And, and God says it to the nation of Israel. Well, that was for them. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't apply to me. Except then you keep finding it over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture. That God is continually and constantly saying to his people, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I am with you. Ken, 
I'm with you. Jim, Sherry, Paul, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It is trusting in God. At this time, six years ago, I went through one of the darkest periods of my life. I I hit a wall that just knocked me flat. I was exhausted physically. I was exhausted mentally. I was exhausted emotionally. I was exhausted spiritually. I was ready to give up on, on, on a church. I was ready to give up on ministry. I was this close to being ready to give up on life. And the only thing, the only thing that kept me going was the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You are with me. And that was my prayer every night for days and weeks and months as I laid my head on my pillow and was thinking, thinking at times, if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, that would be okay. Laying my head on my pillow. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And that became the one thing that I held on to. And maybe you find yourself this morning in one of those kind of places and life has changed and has not turned out the way that you had planned and your hopes and your dreams have been dashed and you are thinking there is no hope. There is no hope. This is the way it's going to be and it's never going to change. Let me tell you, there is hope because God is with you. He is with you. And when you trust in God, you are not trusting in the thing. You are trusting in a person, in his character, and in his ability and his power. And it's easy to believe that God is all-powerful. Sometimes it's hard to believe that he is good. And I think one of the greatest misunderstandings that is perpetuated among Christians and churches is this idea that God is a far-off impersonal, angry judge. And I know that because I grew up in a church that was a good church, and nobody ever said those words out loud, but I came away learning my Sunday school lessons always with this idea that as long as I do good, God will take care of me. But if I do wrong, watch out, because he's going to hit me upside the head with a baseball bat. And I bet every one of you have had those thoughts. That that's who God is. It's hard to believe in a good God. God is an angry God. God is an angry judge. And as long as you do it right, you'll be okay. But boy, you step out of line and stand back. Because he's going to get you. And when things go wrong in your life, the first question you ask is, what did I do to deserve this? God, what sin is there in my life that I committed to to have this thing happen to me. And that is our first reaction. 
And I know because I have counseled so many people who tell me what's going on in their life and they're saying, I must have done something horrible or I know I did something horrible and God is finally paying me back. God is not karma. He is not karma. He is a personal, loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving, and good God. And that is Christmas. That is Christmas. That is the story of Christmas. That God came near. God came to you. God came to me. God made himself available and accessible and in a way that nobody could be threatened. A little baby. And Joseph was told, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is our Savior who is with us. And if you in any way are living your life with God with this balanced scale going on in your mind and constantly afraid of being whapped upside the head because something you did wrong or feeling like you've got to really, really plead your case to him if he's going to answer your prayer and it's like God is Santa Claus and you've got to prove to him you've been a good boy or girl so him to answer your prayer. If you are in any way living your life with God from that perspective, I want to destroy that hope because it is a false hope. Because you will never be good enough. It's hopeless. Our only hope is that God came near to us. God came to be with us. I love the way Lewis Smeads put it. Let me read this to you in closing. Hope that he will be with us in our troubles. Not necessarily for him to take our troubles away but always to be there under us to hold us up, ahead of us to lead the way, behind us to push us along, over us to keep an eye on us, and in us to keep alive our hopes of getting beyond our troubles. That's good stuff. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.